During the editing process, we realized that we had audio difficulties when recording, but the content of the interview was so good that we wanted to make sure it was available to listeners in its entirety. We apologize for the audio difficulties, and we will continue to work to refine our recording process. Hello, and thank you for listening to the AT Tapes, a podcast from the Journal of Athletic Training. The goal of this podcast is to interview researchers and clinicians on current topics facing athletic trainers and discuss how we can utilize best practices to improve patient outcomes. We're excited to be back recording after break so that I could focus on end of semester responsibilities and get married. So with that, my new name is Lizzie Elder, and I'm the host of the AT Tapes podcast. I'm an associate professor and the AT program director at the University of Alabama. My research area is on shoulder and elbow injury prevention in youth overhead athletes. You can follow me on Twitter at EE Hibbard. Before getting started on today's episode, I wanted to remind everyone that all content from JAT is open access, meaning it is free of charge to all readers, thanks to funding from the National Athletic Trainers Association. Today's podcast will highlight a recent commentary from the Journal of Athletic Training titled The Tip of the Iceberg, Commentary on Sports, Health Inequity, and Trauma Exacerbated by COVID-19. The focus of this paper was to discuss the relevance of system-level health inequities and their interplay with race in sports and athletic training. Understanding social determinants of health and understanding the effect of racism, health disparities, and health inequities on patients is imperative to providing equitable, patient-centered care. This year has presented unimaginable challenges, grief, and opportunities for growth in so many areas. We hope that this conversation will positively contribute to the ongoing discussions surrounding the intersection of race and health while focusing on the sports medicine context. We're excited to welcome two of the authors of the commentary, Kemba Noel-London and Trey Porter, to discuss this important topic. Kemba is an athletic trainer who is currently pursuing her doctorate at St. Louis University in the Department of Health Management and Policy. Trey is the director of the Missouri Minority Coaches Association and a football and track coach at Jackson High School in Jackson, Georgia. Kemba and Trey, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here. So we'll start by learning a little bit more about you guys um, and kind of how, who you are and how you got to, to this point. So Kemba, let's start with you. Can you give us a little bit of background on how you, why you became an athletic trainer and your educational background? Yeah, so I actually uh, became an athletic trainer because of language barriers, um, funny enough. And so I, I'm originally from Trinidad and Tobago. Uh, so we say physio because we're part of the Commonwealth. That's kind of the language that we use when we talk about uh, people who work within sports medicine and those kind of things. And I was very much obsessed with Chelsea Football Club um, to this day where my sister and I will fight over Barca versus Chelsea. Um, different leagues, but, you know, the point still remains. Uh, so I wanted to be a Chelsea physio. <laughs> so um, when I came to school in the U.S., I assumed or I thought that physical therapy and being a physio were the same things, which there, I mean, it's, there are similarities in terms of a physiotherapist and a physical therapist, but the sport aspect and how that's taught um, in the U.K. or in Australia and this kind of things is very different to how physical therapy is taught in the U.S. 
Um, and I got introduced to uh, Dr. Anthony Breitbach, who was at the time kind of really molding the fledgling athletic training program at SLU. And that's when I realized, oh, this, this is definitely more in line with what I want to do. And my experience of being a former national athlete for Transvega for volleyball um, and having torn my ACL at 16 and just the way that that managed, um, I wanted to, you know, be able to be that person that prevented that from happening, friends, still national athletes and elite athletes and those kind of things, but just the future generation of uh, athletes that were coming up in terms of being elite athletes. So it was a lot of pride for me to be able to go back to my country and be able to be the head athletic trainer for our men's rugby sevens teams and then kind of full circle and work with the volleyball team at different conflict, at uh, Pan Am games and those kind of things as well. Um, so that's how I ended up in athletic training. <laughs> um, and in my educational background, so I got my master's degree in athletic training from SLU. Um, and then I worked at USC to University of South Carolina as an intern. So I was a head athletic trainer at Swansea High School there for a year and then assisted in their athletic training education program. Um, and then went home and then Tony, Dr. Breitbach was like, hey, I know you mentioned you want to do your PhD. We might have an opportunity. Do you want to come? And I was like, sure. And public health just seemed to make the most sense because there were things that I was questioning in terms of how sports medicine and the system was run. In Trinidad, because of our, how our healthcare system is set up, and then me as an athletic trainer, being trained in the U.S. where the healthcare system does not look like anything else in the world, having to come and take a profession that was designed for this healthcare system and make it fit into one that's more along the lines of NHS was just a very interesting and jarring experience. Um, but it also raised questions in terms of how can uh, primary care, sports medicine, all those different things really be integrated a little bit better in those kind of systems. So uh, public health just was the best fit in terms of kind of giving me those skills and how to answer those questions that really start at a system level, but you see the outcomes, the health outcomes, or the impact of those decisions on the, of the athletes and just regular people level. Because in Trinidad, I worked with everybody, right? It wasn't just the elite athletes, but I also worked with the general population as well. So that's kind of how I ended up here back at St. Louis, and that's where I met Trey. Um, and so now I want to um, talk to Trey a little bit. So Trey, can you tell us a little bit about your um, educational background and what you spend your days doing? Well, undergraduate studies were done at Southeast Missouri State University. I was a two-sport athlete, uh, competed in 2008 OBC championship track and field team, and I was a member of the 2010 OVC championship football team as well. So I played two sports at on the collegiate level at Southeast Missouri State. I have a master's in academics, uh, secondary education. Uh, I have a principal certification and a special education certification as a school teacher. Uh, working with ATs, I kind of had that issue in high school from kind of running away from them because they were the people that were going to shut you down. If you had a concussion, you were dizzy, something was jammed, the ATs had the bad rap of uh, providing care and doing their job. On the collegiate level, it was similar. You know, we always ran away from them because we didn't want to We didn't want to have to stop playing the game. Uh, becoming a coach, had to make the transformation to now I have to work with athletic trainers. And Kimmel was the first one I worked with as a head coach and athletic director for a, a school in St. Louis at Roosevelt High School. Uh, we had a full service program, so we had a 
nurse practitioners within the building, athletic trainers within the building, school psychiatrists were all within the same building. And being an athletic director and head football and track coach of that institute, I have to kind of rally around those people and their services to make our operation run as one. Uh, definitely changed the narrative when I was able to work with Kimba on the other side of the business as far as, you know, providing care and needing care and needing services uh, versus being an athlete and kind of run away from those same very things that you need and use as a, as a head coach and athletic director. Well, I'm glad Kemba was able to uh, change your perspective on athletic trainers. And uh, now sounds like you're definitely an advocate for athletic training. Um, so uh, you kind of talked about how you met Kemba, uh, but can you talk a little bit about how you got involved with this group um, to contribute with this to the publication of this paper um, and, and discussion? Well, being a director of the Missouri Minority Coaches Association, we're Missouri based, but a lot of heavy uh, focus on St. Louis area. And uh, we deal with a lot of trauma. And from an athletic training standpoint, I mean, Kim would talk all the time about trauma when it comes to sports injuries. And then we also ventured into uh, acute, not just acute trauma, but, you know, the mental aspects of it. And that was my uh, calling in a sense. A lot of traumatic issues dealing with different ACEs with the population that we served at Roosevelt High School and kind of developed an expertise in uh, trauma and coaching. Uh, and actually providing seminars to other head coaches across the region and throughout other parts of the country with just uh, uh, manifesting coaching, with athletic training, with uh, mental therapy and mental health as a, as a practice of where we can take the game of sports. There's a lot of focus on the 3D of coaching with the FCA. And similar to diving into it when you look at the student athletes that you serve and the trauma that they deal with other than sports-related injuries. And just dialing back, being an athletic director, as I mentioned, kind of have to wear not just a head coaching hat all the time. So I have to look at the overall schemes of what is happening to this kid. I feel like we ask the question too much of what's wrong to what we didn't do or what does this, what service does this child need? And with the publication that we were able to put out, I was able to provide some intel, uh, working samples and other things of like live, what we're preaching in practice and was able to see how a struggling one and nine football team transfers to an eight and three that transferred to an 11 and two, by also not just focusing on the athletic uh, health but also the mental capacity and all those things came from the group that put together with that publication. Well, I'm looking forward to learning more about the publication and talking more with you guys. So I'm going to ask you guys if you can define a few terms, um, one being social determinants of health and then health equity and inequity and health disparities. Yeah. So um, I can, I can do this because it ties in with, you know, my research and stuff in terms of being in public health. So when we think about social determinants of health, the social determinants of health are defined as the conditions in which people work, play, uh, live, and they are seen as the key drivers of racial and ethnic health disparities, right? Um, so when we think of health inequity, health inequity or health equity, um, as defined by the World Health Organization, is the fair and just opportunity for every place, every person or everybody to achieve optimal health, independent of unfair, on a, on, on a, sorry, independent of unfair 
avoidable and a remedi remediable difference among groups, right? So health equity and health inequities tied to the ethical concept of justice and fairness, right? Health disparities. Um, so when you think of health disparities, the word disparity means a difference, right? So it's a difference or just not being able to achieve parity. So it's a particular type of health difference that is closely linked with economic and social and environmental disadvantage, right? So health disparities adversely affect groups of people who have systematically experienced greater social or economic obstacles to health based on their racial or ethnic group, religion, socioeconomic status, gender, age, mental health, um, cognitive sensory or physical disability, and sexual orientation and gender identity as well, right? And then part of that also is geographic location um, that takes a play in terms of, you know, what does your geographic location say about your health outcomes, right? How do those things kind of tie together? So that is the kind of, you know, nuanced separation between health disparity and health equity. So thank you for giving those definitions and hopefully we'll be able to communicate effectively, not just in this um, podcast, but as we uh, continue this discussion um, well beyond the podcast. So we are recording this episode at the beginning of Black History Month, which is an opportunity to acknowledge the achievements by African-Americans and a time for recognizing historical experiences that have shaped our world. Can you provide some historical perspective on factors that may influence how racially and ethnically diverse patients may experience the healthcare system? Um, I mean, I can go first and then Trey, you could join in as well. So I think, um, I think as a foreigner kind of coming in, um, it's interesting and having my own experience with the healthcare system in the U.S., having one torn my ACL, my second ACL in the U.S., but also being in a car accident and having the experience of my care being based solely on the color of my skin in terms of the objective measures of, say, my kidney function, right? It was reduced to this idea of, well, it's because you're Black, that's why I'm worried of you having kidney disease. And no matter how I'm saying, that makes no sense. My medical history does not suggest that. Neither does my fam familial history at all. They're like, nope, it's because you're Black and then Black people in St. Louis are more likely to have kidney disease. That's a real life quote that the doctor said to me. And I just had to put on my public health researcher PhD hat and be like, none of my ancestors were on the slave ships that landed here. That's not how genetics work. That's not what we're going to do when it comes to the treatment of my health, right? But if we think about, I have that language and that knowledge to be able to speak that way, right? To be able to advocate for myself. It really made me wonder, why is that the the way that healthcare in the U.S. is so rooted in, well, there's a difference and it's because this person is Black and not really putting onus on the system. When historically the system has been the one that has treated Black and Brown communi uh, communities like they were lesser than, right? So if we think of historically like the Tuskegee syphilis trials, right, which is the common one we talk about in public health all the time, they treated those, the, the Black and Brown people who were part of that experiment very much as they were just subjects within there, right? So within the ancestors and the, the descendants of the people who were in that experiment, they don't trust the healthcare system because things are passed down orally, right? That's, I think, an interesting thing across the diaspora. Where I come from in Trinidad, um, there's no Yelp review, right? Yelp exists because the internet exists. But if I mess up and it gets passed down orally, that's, that's, that's the end of my career. It does not matter what a Facebook review says. It's more important about does this anti-vouch for you, right? Does this person vouch for you, right? So that's the same thing in terms of 
you know, healthcare system and healthcare interaction as well within the U.S. that I found. And to really understand if you are part of the healthcare system, you have to acknowledge that the system itself is the problem and not the people that you're treating. And to make sure that you are interacting with them in a way that always respects their dignity, right, and respects their choice because you don't understand what it means to come from these communities um, who historically have been marginalized, right, and their voice has never been heard and not just, you know, me as a patient, you're ignoring the fact where I'm saying to you, mm, this is not how this works and this is because I just got hit by a semi-truck, right, not because of the color of my skin. And I think I'll piggyback, you know, not just even from the experimental trials with back with Tuskegee, we also have to look at the uh, ability to get care and to get certain services. And then we talk about the insured and uninsured. Uh, you know, it's been a big deal with insured and uninsured when it comes to high school athletics uh, from getting physicals and getting into the physicians for, again, athletic training, physical training, physical therapy, rather. So we see a lot in black and brown communities where kids typically can't play sports if they have no insurance coverage. So that, that takes away one of their outlets to to vent, to make it out of their communities when they can't play because they're not insured. And then when they have certain injury related, they're going to go to an emergency room instead of the actual doctor that they should see. Uh, and we see that a lot from just the, the number of visits, you know, we'd have a kid that probably got a broken leg, but they're going to prescribe ibuprofen and tell them just a painkiller. So now he's not going to get the proper treatment to get the proper rehabilitation. And once they, they're going to basically be covered with whatever Medicaid covers. And if they don't have insurance, that's the biggest disparity that we're seeing. And then not having doctor access in the communities that they live in. Uh, that's that's huge. And I think, you know, like you said, it's Black History Month and the strides that we're making in the medical fields, a lot of them are not being felt in the community that are are, are suffering the most. Uh, and I just think that we have a job and an obligation. Uh, that's why as a coach, I know the athletes that I come in contact with, some of the first things they learn outside of sports also come from me. So I'm able to teach some of those best practices and, you know, talk about coverages and care and things like that. So I just want to just piggyback a little bit off the trail a little bit more. Um, I think for me coming in again um, and in learning in public health and public policy um, is understanding how, policies that have shaped the society that is American society, it's we have to start acknowledging the impact that that has on our patients and our athletes' lives and their health outcomes, right? It would be foolhardy to think that it affects the general population, right? So if we go back to, say, geography, there's redlining, right? It's important to acknowledge there's a direct impact of redlining and where you live and the access to, like Trey said, health insurance, access to physicians, access to a proper field to play, right? Access to athletic trainers. So there's a deeper connection with different policies that have shaped American society and any systemic inequalities that are present and prevalent everywhere within, within this space and how that impacts us as athletic trainers and working within healthcare and allied health. I think as we try to, we are, fighting more and more to be recognized and to be acknowledged as healthcare professionals. And we also need to be on the flip side to acknowledge, okay, cool, this is how this system was built. 
these are the issues that are happening out here. This is how this impacts us. Let us be the profession to really try to stand in the gap for our athletes because we do that anyway, but we now need to start doing it in a more intentional um, and really like public health focused way because they're not just athletes. We might They might be athletes when we see them, but the minute they step out of that, that athletic training room or step off the field, they're not just athletes anymore, right? The wider context of their lives is important to consider. So thank you for sharing your own experiences and experiences of the individuals you work with and then broader, um, a, a lot of those historical perspectives as well that really shape how the healthcare system might be viewed by the, by racially and ethnically diverse patients. So in addition to these different experiences, there are also differences in health outcomes between races and ethnicities. Can you talk a little bit about some of the most common health disparities and inequities um, that we see in the patients that we commonly treat in an athletic setting. And I know you've touched on this briefly um, with some of the health inequities, but um, anything more on the health disparities and health inequities would be great. Yeah. So I would say like, you know, our patient population can be really broad, right? Um, so it, it, it really, um, to narrow down depends on the population, the community you serve to be, if you want to be specific. But I mean, there are a plethora of health disparities in the wider population that can be present in the ones that we serve. So I think in the paper, we kind of talked about uh, looking at asthma, right? In terms of, you know, black and brown kids are less likely to have a pediatric asthma, asthma care plan, right? So if you think about how that's now going to manifest in the kid who has asthma attack on the field and does not have medicine, right? They don't have access to get a prescription to get an inhaler, right? Because they don't have a primary care provider at all, right? Or they may not have insurance that covers having access to to be able to get an inhaler or something like that, right? Um, I, I think it was Dresner at Al is the other one I, I cited. So we look at sudden cardiac death, sudden cardiac arrest, sorry, survival after SEA event, um, non-Hispanic um Latino white athletes were more likely to survive or had a higher survival rate than any athlete from any minority group, right? So, which I think is not something that we, at least that's not something that I learned when I was going through school in terms of, you know, the survival rate. We learned the survival rate as it's important for you to start and administer the AED as soon as possible after cardiac arrest, right, to increase survival. But now as we're looking in terms of it from a public health perspective, we're learning that um, black and brown athletes are less likely to get bystander help. They're less likely to get assistance from people, um, even though they're, even if they go into cardiac arrest, right? So those are things that are really traumatizing to read and to learn <laughs> and to see the data for. And it makes you angry because like this, why? Why is this a thing? Why is, why is this data that's there? And then even just in general, looking at the, um, out of hospital pediatric SEA, right? Not just not just sports in general, but just pediatric SEA survival. Brown and black pediatric patients have a lower survival rate overall, right? So it's just we're seeing how just those things within the wider system, how they're also now trickling down within to the sports, sports medicine care and the sports system that we serve as well. I think the one the one paper that I, in terms of the research that I was doing for this article. The one thing that really kind of struck me, and 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 it's because it, I anecdotally have backed that up with athletes and their experience, is the fact that uh, based on their race and their socio perceived socioeconomic status, 
uh, athletes who are treated differently by sports medicine staff within the college setting, right? So that's disheartening to hear, but we also know that to be true because I feel like if you talk to college athletes who come from minority groups, they'll have a story of, you know, being perceived uh, to not receive the care that they should, right? Or being talked down or not being believed when their pain is at a certain level, right? Uh, because we know within the wider healthcare system, that's a major issue, especially when it comes to black women. Black women are just not believed as much when it comes to pain. When they present to the ER, they're less likely to get the pain medication that they need. They're less likely to be believed and be sent home with ibuprofen, right? When you compare that to other groups, to white women or to white men, right? There's there, so there are things that are happening in the healthcare system on a, at a large level, but then we are trying to hope that it doesn't happen within our sphere, but the evidence is showing that it does. So as you were talking about that, one of the things uh, that really stuck out to me, both in what you were talking about and actually when I was reading the paper, is there was this one line in the paper that I highlighted, and, and it's, um, in athletes and patients, these circumstances combine to manifest as the athlete who never has an inhaler at practice, and then it goes on to, to talk about some other things, and I just kept thinking about situations where, you know, I would have students that would say, oh, we had a kid with asthma at practice, and they didn't have an inhaler, and your immediate reaction is, well, why not? Did they leave it at home? And you automatically tend to almost place the blame on the patient when, as you just talked about it, it really ultimately a lot of times comes down to these systemic issues um, that have nothing to do with the actual individual. So um, I I think the intentionality and language is also um, something very important uh, of how we interact with our patients. So, you know, this might be one example, you've hit on this a lot and kind of talking about asthma, but what are the impacts of these individual and collective experiences on how individuals of racial and ethnic minorities may view athletic trainers or the sports medicine team or the help that's trying to be offered to them um, as part of the sports medicine team? I think the views of it also comes from the inability to determine on the medical side of things, who's what, uh, from a nurse, from a doctor to a, uh, Plebotomists, a lot of student athletes kind of just bulk it as one. So the stigma follows, regardless if you if you're AT and you're doing uh, you're, you're there to fix them. You're there for the uh, uh, training purposes of it. They're going to still carry that same fear that they have going into the dentist office. And based on and a lot of our socioeconomical backgrounds that I've worked with. The inability to determine who's providing what care and what service transfers into a stigma of fear. And again, it's a lot of it. I feel like the easiest uh, bridge, the easiest bridge that can be climbed with the relation with the high school coaches, middle school, just just coaches and, and the health officials, because they understand the importance of a service. We've we've trained student athletes that know that, hey, you have to have a pre pre-participation physical to even come out here. And that's always a barrier that they're willing to go get because it still is something that they want to, 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 uh, to, they want to, they want to participate. So they're going to get the physical. So I think that we have to be able to differentiate the positions of all health officials and also teach the student athletes that these are services that this one provides. This is what this other individual provide. And in the more diversity we get in the actual field, 
will create a, 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 a welcoming environment. There's a quote that I always go by. It says, little Billy can't be what he doesn't see. So when you take that into the realm of the PTs, the ATs, the doctors, the psychiatrists, once once it's become a welcoming environment that, hey, that AT looks like me, sounds like me, listens to the same music that I listen to when they're pulling up to the parking lot. Those little nuggets of information don't get as much, uh, they don't carry as much value as they should in, in every scam of of living, but mainly in the in the health profession side, because my mom's an RN. She's been a school nurse for over 20 years. And to this day, like there's there's residents in our community that we grew up in that will come to her to get stitches removed prior to going back to urgent care or back to their normal position. And it's just that relation that they have that someone looks like them is going to care for them the same way that they would, uh, you know. And it's just it's it's a it's an underlined and overvalued trust that's established based on just the commonality of uh, uh, race, ethnicity, socioeconomical status, and every demographic that we may look at. Yeah, and then to piggyback off of what Trey said, I think um, for me, working in the school where we met in Central Roosevelt High School, um, they also had a high immigrant or refugee uh, population as well, too, right? So having, I think for me, with having that accent and also coming from a different country, while we may have had different paths of getting here, there's a certain comfort, like you said, that comes in when you walk into a health clinic that, you know, already has the sterile white walls and the bright fluorescent lights and those kind of things. But you're greeted with somebody who looks like you um, or greeted with somebody who does not sound like everybody else, right? So there's this idea of, oh, I'm not, I could actually kind of relax and be a little bit more of myself. I can trust this person a little bit more. And the kids that I have worked with uh, in terms of it, at Roosevelt, the common theme I would get is that I had to constantly remind them or convince them that I was here that I was here to stay and that I didn't just come in and I wasn't just trans transitory. Right. Because I think a lot of the times they were used to, um, they were used to athletic trainers coming in every Saturday or every other Saturday, whenever they could have afforded one. Right. So they never really built any kind of relationship with an athletic trainer or with any other health healthcare professional. Right. Because they don't have a, a primary care. Right. So like we mentioned before, they're more likely to be using the ER as their PC. So there's no guarantee that they're going to be seeing the same physician. So they have this transitory relationship with healthcare to begin with, right? So now when you have somebody who is present and showing up consistently there when, there when they say that they're going to be, right? And then is caring for you, looks like you, all those things. Now you're starting to change that relationship with the healthcare system simply by showing up and being consistent all the time. Because I think within these communities, because access is so limited, you don't ever have that kind of, you know, true static relationship building within, within healthcare and the healthcare profession as well, too. So I think that's also something to consider, like, okay, yes, we're doing our patient, but if we could try to be consistent in terms of the care and who we're providing it to, that really helps you know, change that idea of like, you know, they're just coming in to use us again. They don't actually care. They're actually here to stay. So I think we've already talked a lot about the importance of understanding and evaluating these social determinants of health in, in providing patient care. Um, is there anything you guys want to add about how really evaluating these and taking these into consideration might change patient care at the individual level? 
Yeah, so I think it's, I think one, it has to start with a true understanding within the diet, the pedagogy of athletic training, um, what social to mental health are and how they manifest themselves and health inequity and those kind of things and like really dive into, um, public health and health services, right? And to be able to see how, how is the wider healthcare system, how are they integrating socially determined to health into their own delivery of care, right? Um, I think for us as athletic trainers, for me, having that relationship with Trey as the athletic director, as the coach, especially working with young black males, I knew that my, I didn't, and as such, I'm a foreigner. Like I, I own the fact that I am, I am foreign, right? So, there's a whole there's a whole different relationship that I built with them than I could ever build well, right ever build with another athlete right so I relied very strongly on on him um, because he's an educator he saw them all day right so even though I came in the clinic and that kind of thing unless they came to see me in the clinic or I saw them at practice I was not going to know what was happening in their everyday life right um, he did he had a better relationship with the parents with whoever the guardians. Um, maybe it might be a sibling and then the kids themselves. So having that relationship with him helps provide more context. So when I have an athlete who has an ankle injury and I am getting frustrated as to okay, why is this person not doing their home exercise program? Because they don't have a home to go to, right? So my priority is now going to shift and think, all right, cool, let's figure out how much we could do here and I'm not going to give you anything to do at home because once you leave this building, your priority now becomes shelter and safety and that's what I want you to focus on and let's see how we could help you get those things and because that's more important than your ankle sprain right now. Yeah and to go to go along with that uh, the approach we just took even at the Roosevelt we sit in a lot of community council meetings of developing a communal part and uh, the CDC talks about the whole school whole community whole child WSCC model and as a coach uh, uh, an athletic director and, and as an educator I knew the importance of that, of having a model to shape that into our education standpoint. Just again, because when you, when you, the alignment of what you focus on has to shift based on the population you serve. And if you're going to be all athletics, all ball, all, uh, you know, athletic training, when you, when you put it all together, that's the only time it's going to work best because it's a universal utopia that is focused on the whole school, the whole community, and the whole child. Definitely sounds like you guys had a great setup there with a, a strong leader who really saw the whole picture of, um, of who the students were and the role that athletics can play in their lives. Um, so I, I um, commend you guys for that. And I'm glad that you all are doing that work because it needs to be done in a lot of communities. So it sounds like you guys have a model for that. So one of the questions that I think comes up for me in reading this, and really even, Kemba, you already brought this up in the conversation a little bit, is how do you get this information? So we don't want to make assumptions about people. Um, you know, you already talked a little bit about, you know, an example with you is some assumptions. So we don't want to make assumptions, but we also need this information for really providing the best care. But if people don't trust you yet, how do you, you know, it seems like you need all the information to move forward, but you need to move forward to get, you know, build the trust with them. So can you talk a little bit about that? So to give some clinical application of really how people could take this information and think about integrating it in their clinical practice. 
with the setup that we had because we had the clinic and those kind of things and we would get information like base information when it comes to insurance right um i think like trey had mentioned before understanding the community that you're in right in terms of is your community high uninsured underinsured population is it a high medicaid population like understanding those just general demographics which you can find without asking um, or if you just ask community workers and those kind of things you could find that information out, right? Um, but I think once, if, you, if you're in a space where you're able to collect health insurance information, right, depending on what that setup looks like, that is also telling, right? Um, I think I knew for me when I came back to the U.S. and working at Roosevelt, I had gotten spoiled from the school I was at prior in the U.S. before I left because everybody had health insurance through the school, if you said, right? So there was just this idea of, okay, cool, you need to go to the doctor, I'll send you, Right. But in this instance, that's not the case, right? Because now it's okay, you public transportation to get to the doctor is not the issue. So for me, it was a very intentional shift of asking, okay, what makes the most sense? Which hospital do you usually go to, like, if something is wrong, right? That's a, that's an easy question to ask that will help you understand, okay, this person either has a PC or doesn't, right? They either have a GP or they don't. This is the hospital that they typically use if something's wrong. So this is the easiest place for me to send to. If I'm talking to, I always try to ask, especially with working in a, a high immigrant population, the assumption of who is in charge needs to go away, right? Because you could either be dealing with a matriarchal or patriarchal culture, right? And it's important for you to understand that because if you're talking to dad, but it's a matriarchal culture, nothing's going to happen, right? You need to know. So I would just ask, okay, who's the best person for me to call? Right. Instead of saying, let's call mom or let's call dad. Who is the best? Who do you want me to call? Which then also translates to kids who may not come from a situation where both parents are there. You're giving them the opportunity to now tell you who is that person instead of you putting that assumption of like, well, let's call mom. They may not have mom or dad to call. Right. They're letting the kids be in charge of the information that they're giving you within a city level. Right. And I think that's important to. To, especially when you don't know, like you said, making assumptions is just never what you want to do, right? So asking questions, right, and not being afraid to ask questions, but it's questions that are important and pertinent, right? You're not trying to pry. You're always trying to build an environment of trust. And once that trust is there, they'll talk to you. They'll tell you things, right? But it's not going to come overnight, right? You have to be able to be present and to show them that you're there, but in the context of like translating it to clinical space, I think just asking the questions of who and where and what, that kind of, that, those things are kind of, you know, what will happen and what will, you know, make translate the best. No, so I think that, again, the trust factor in the building relationships, what, what you gotta, the assumption that we don't wanna make is one that I always made was based on the fact that the kids are going to know more about themselves and the information that they can provide than a lot of the times that anyone else in their household would from the issues related to related to them. Uh, and then reaching out to parents, when you we were able to tell them that, hey, we can provide some of these same services that you're going to get at your neighborhood physician on campus because not only did we have an AT, 
we had a nurse practitioner in the building as well. So now the fact that the, the, the parents knew that if I get my child to school and to provide the correct documentation that he can get, he or she can get everything that they need while they're in the school setting. So if you need a physical, again, you can get that while you was there. We did a lot of, uh, our nurse practitioner had a great relationship with the females that weren't athletes for a lot of the female related uh, practices of medical, OB, not OBGYN stuff, but you know, the, the women healthcare, we'll just use that term. So she was able to handle that with that population as well. But and then all it required was initial obtaining that first batch of information. And a lot of times we try to do that at enrollment because that was one of the few times that, like I said, we didn't have a lot of parent involvement, especially based on even one, they're not involved, two, they're no longer living with their parents, or three, they just have a work a dynamic work schedule. And by having a dynamic work schedule, they weren't able to get there on time. But for that registration, we knew that would be the one time that we possibly be able to get everything from them. And we used that as a tool to get, I mean, it was a, the registration process was uh, class enrollment for athletic director and then uh, clinic on your way out. And it was basically your three stops. So that way we get everything at one time. And the other option was to streamline things where it's not a lot of forms where if you signed up for this, it also counted it. It also you check multiple boxes by checking three and and then having the students of age when, you know, when they turn 18, they're kind of their own. They, they're able to do their own sign, their own signatures and things like that. That was also also uh, uh, something that wouldn't frown down on based on the fact that we knew a lot of these kids kind of were their own primary caregivers way prior to the age of 18. So to stay in compliance, you know, you can't do, you can't sign certain things until you are 18. But in the time being, once we did get those parents to come to school, once we did get them to sign waivers, once we did get them in, we, we utilized the information as much as we can. So it was meaningful information that we were obtaining. And then just the ability to build that trust, to create that network, and then tell them their why. Uh, a lot of times when obtaining information, we're just in a blank docket home. And expected to be returned back. You know, it, it requires three minutes of a phone conversation to call a parent and say, hey, I'm sending home, sending Johnny home with these five forms. He needs them back tomorrow. He's going to be able to get this service, that service, this service, that service. And again, the fact that it was a check all, you can see our AT, you can you can uh, see an eye doctor, you can see a dentist, all within one documentation. So having that full service ability would make that obtaining that information not very hard. So thank you for talking to us about the sports medicine team and experiences um, of how uh, people of racial and ethnic diversity might experience these um, and giving us some concrete suggestions of how we can really incorporate this into our clinical practice as athletic trainers. So it being 2021 on the heels of 2020, no discussion is actually complete without talking about COVID and um, how COVID has impacted and shaped the world. Um, but COVID-19 really 
fits into the sphere of health inequity disparities and how this trauma of COVID-19 might be disproportionately impacting certain groups. So can you guys speak to this a little bit and offer guidance on how ATs approach this with their patients and especially in places as their patients are returning from having experiences either with COVID or family members with COVID? So COVID is, um, we know that it's disproportionately impacting uh, black and brown communities within the U.S., right? And there is the kind of advent of this new new essential worker, right? In the sense of um, you have teenagers who are essentially essential workers, right? Because they're working in a grocery store and they have to work through the entirety of a pandemic. Um, there are coaches that I've spoken to for different research projects and just kind of, you know, figure out what, what does the community need where they've lost track of kids because, um, they've now become that primary breadwinner, right? Or they've now had to contribute to the income of that household. Um, so virtual school wasn't really an option, right? Um, and sports no longer became a priority because there was no sports to go to, right? So, now we're coming back into the space where, okay, we're kind of having a handle of what, you know, social distancing and masking and that kind of stuff looks like and how do we do that within the realm of sports and do it safely. Um, it's to understand that your, your athletes, they still, they're still going through the trauma of COVID, right? Cause, you know, they come from communities where the, there's a high likelihood that, you know, somebody would have died, right? From COVID, right? Um, or they have to go work two jobs in order to provide for their families because of COVID, right? So the trauma and the traumatic aspect of COVID, um, it's, it's hard to navigate and it's hard to support. And I think it, it just becomes and highlights a little bit more now the holistic approach of how you're, how you're being an athletic trainer, right? Your ankle sprain right now, while it's important immediately, on the wider scale of things is not the most important thing, right? It's to understand, okay, when this kid is leaving my presence, right, how are they getting home? Do they have food? Are they going to work, right? All of those things needed. You're building a relationship to really try to understand what is happening outside of the athletic training room so that when you have them, you're able to support, to provide support in a very meaningful way, that they can really try, really now utilize sport and that space as the break and the reprieve from what is else is happening outside in the world, right? And I also say in the athletic trainers, like we, we have also now been shoved on the front line in a way that, you know, was, a lot of us weren't really prepared for. So taking care of yourself is also important because you don't want to unintentionally traumatize or re-traumatize a child who is going home to a house of um, you know, divorce, abuse, anything like that. You don't ever want to unintentionally be or intentionally do that, right? So that becomes really important that you are taking care of you, that you are also being able to acknowledge and navigate your own traumatic experience because COVID is a, is a collective traumatic experience for everybody. It shifted so many things in the world and the way that we quote unquote have normal lives that, you know, not everybody's going to respond to that in the same way. The highest population of deaths is black and brown. Uh, we relate to ATs as coaches for all medical advice. Uh, even with this situation, with this pandemic, it wasn't an athletic injury per se, but it was something that stopped play. So for the student athletes, it was something that they can 
relate to the AT4 and trying to get information from regarding. When we talk about the inequalities and disparities from COVID, you have to account for the trauma that was caused prior to COVID. And those situations for a lot of the student athletes that were dealing with trauma didn't go away when COVID came. Uh, Not having uh, an an adequate amount of food and shelter that still was a problem. Uh, And when you talk about sports being taken away from student athletes, their one vessel, their one outlet, their one possible way out that they were looking forward to was now stripped from them as well. So now you have the trauma of everything that's going on at home tied into the trauma that's coming from the anxiety of not knowing what tomorrow's going to bring with COVID, having to tie those two issues in with the importance of doing all the preventative measures of preventing yourself from catching COVID. So with every all the traumatic issues that was going on and basically you say their real lives prior to COVID, on top of the COVID taking away something that they valued very strongly, and then you have then you're tied with the task of teaching the importance of COVID prevention. That almost took the back seat based on the fact that now that life for most was more dangerous than COVID. And as dangerous and deadly as COVID is, uh, a large scale of student athletes that I've come in contact with, that a lot of disparities that we talk about in the research deal with, are dealing with real life problems that are bigger than COVID in the life of death situation. And when you put that in context of COVID being as deadly as it is, that there's still a greater fear in a lot of their communities it changes the whole dynamic and landscape of how deadly is COVID because a lot of these kids in their communities, they still know more people that died from uh, crime in their city, uh, uh, being impoverished communities than they do that will actually die from COVID-19. So based on that, the numbers doesn't say that on the grand scheme of things, but it goes back to the personal inability to know and not know somebody that's directly influenced and impacted by it. So the disparities and inadequates that, yes, we're dying from COVID, black and brown at a larger rate. However, those, it's not, a lot of peers, a lot of their peers aren't. So they're not seeing 19, 20 year olds die from COVID, but they're still seeing them die from some of the underlining issues that are happening in that community. So when you tie that into how serious COVID is, that's just now you have three dimensions of trauma going on for a student athlete in the COVID era. So, again, you got the trauma of everything that's going on home prior to COVID. Uh, Then you got the trauma of everything that COVID took away from the social aspects and their ability to play and participate in athletics. And you got the third one of trauma itself and the sickness of the virus. So I think they have three three T's when it comes to COVID-19. Well, I could talk to you guys forever because you are both um, so fascinating as um, clinicians and people and researchers. And um, it's really amazing talking to you guys about 
um, your approaches and really making sure that you are putting your patients first and figuring out everything, um, all these different aspects to ensure the best quality care for your patients. And um, it's very refreshing talking to you all. So as we finish up this episode today, I'm going to ask you both to give one to two take-home points um, that specifically athletic trainers could use to improve patient care. So Kemba, let's start with you. I was sitting here thinking, oh, please stop the tree. Please stop the tree. <laughs> um, I will say, I think a take-home point is, one, um, we as a profession, I hope that this is the, the catalyst for more nuance and intentional conversation about socially to mental health and adverse child experiences and those kind of things um, to really just improve and holistically develop and to, to push us forward as a profession and clinicians as well. Um, I really hope that was the goal and the hope of the article as well, that it really started a conversation and that, you know, and, and programs themselves start to recognize, oh, we need to really inc incorporate these things because it's part of health. It's part of health healthcare. Um, and if we're speaking, trying to speak the language of public health, then we really need to start, you know, researching and talking the language of public health as well, too. Um, I think, and secondly, that... Um, Social racism is a public health issue. <laughs> that's that's also a thing that I talked about in the article as well, and it's been declared that in by multiple states in the U.S. Um, and it's a multifaceted issue, and it affects your health. It's part of social mental health. It's of adverse child experience as well. Um, and we have to get more comfortable talking about, along with the social mental health, how race and the experience of race impacts your health, not only as an athlete, but also as a clinician as well, too, right? Because there are things that uh, black and brown clinicians experience, either within the workplace or their experience as a patient or interacting with athletes, um, that goes under the rug and isn't discussed as much as it should. And I think in order for the profession to really be in a place to advocate for the ideas, AT is part of public health, we also need to start, for lack of a better phrase, cleaning house, too, and I think for me, with my relationship with athletic trainers and coaches, uh, you have to make your ATs and all medical-related officials around your team extensions of your coaching staff. Uh, you can't try to separate the two as if it's us versus them or whatever they say. We're going to get a second opinion, third opinion, and we don't agree with the AT. Uh, based on that, because you wouldn't do it with any other coach on your staff. And I think once you align the mission vertically, from every aspect of what we're doing, who's in charge of what, you have the ability to grow and streamline a lot of processes. And again, with the disparities that, that we deal with, the only way to fix them is to tackle head on. Uh, we've been dancing around them for years. Uh, generational curses are all part of a lot of medical inadequacies. Uh, so until we address those as systematic issues, they're going to still continue to be oppressors through the black and brown community and the vessels that we have and the partnerships that we create to do research, to find underlining issues. They're going to just continue to stare, on, stare at them because they're going to be too fearful to adjust. The change and the transformation is going to be uncomfortable for everyone. But if you stumble through that roadblock on the way, 
the roads are going to get a lot straight and a lot more easy to travel once we all decide that we have to do what's best for the child uh, unconditionally and unapologetically. And as we do those, uh, everybody will benefit gratefully. So just to add, I just want to quote my mom. We all need to get better, to get more comfortable with being uncomfortable. That's just, that's the reality of how we're going to progress and move forward. Uncomfortable is the only way that we grow and it's the only way that we're going to progress. And if we get, if we start as a sports, sports medicine, as professionals, if we just start getting more comfortable with having that uncomfortability, having those conversations and those kind of things, I think the transformation, like Trey said, will be phenomenal. I just want to thank you guys so much for coming on the podcast today. I think this was a great discussion that will give people a lot to think about and hopefully um, take back into their job settings and communities and think about and discuss. Um, I look forward to seeing what is next for you guys in terms of research and um, publications, but more so in the communities that you're impacting day in and day out, because that's where the real work is. So thank you guys for being on the podcast and for the work and efforts you are doing. Thanks for having us. Thank you. That is it for today's The AT Tapes, and we look forward to our next episodes. Please remember to rate and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Also, please follow the Journal of Athletic Training on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at JAT underscore NATA on all three platforms. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join us for next month's episode of The AT Tapes.